0: And behold, the lawyer stood up to to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. He said to him, You've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus,
1: I sent Roosevelt back to give me a Bible because I had forgotten mine. I couldn't find it. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> um, I meant on the shelf over here where the hymnal was on Which hymnal? <laughs> Which hymnal is <laughs> the only one to get it? Mm-hmm. Where do we get them for morning prayer? Oh, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I only have myself to blame for all of this. Um, thank you, Rosie.
0: What was Rosie looking for?
1: Uh, the kids are invited to kids' church in the library. This is uh, continuing our journey after Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke. Now I have more Bibles than I need. Um... Thank you, Paul. Um, And what we saw in the last scene was that Jesus tries to enter Samaria, and he reaches the Samarian sort of opposition, and the disciples are like, uh, should we call down fire upon them, which is a natural reaction to anybody who opposes you? Uh, And Jesus says, no. Um, And then... We talked about how that's a setup for this parable. We heard this parable of the Good Samaritan, which is this next lot. They go from, and this is proper to the historical context and proper to the Jewish mind of the time, and proper to what I think will connect to the depth of this parable. Proper to the ancient mind, people are made up of boundaries and groups and weeds. We we are Jews. We're um, uh, we're Samaritans, we're Romans, we're this. People are made up of bounded groups. And so it's not just Jews or people who struggle with this idea of, like, who is in our corporate identity or not. But it's all people at this time. And the fact that it seems like we do that less at this time, if you, were, if you read the email this week, it's, it's due to the cultural inheritance of Christianity and Judaism in the West is that, uh, and Tom Holland was the reviewer who I heard the book. I noted Dominion, which is, I think, a bestseller right now, where he notes that the modern world, the idea of individual rights, the idea of, of, of compassion being central, the idea of kindness, the idea of equality actually starts with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, Tom Holland, I still don't think, is a Christian. His only point is that what shifts the West into a different cultural inheritance is, what comes out of Christianity's universalizing influence of Judaism. All that to say, um, we've shifted perhaps into a time where this seems more normative, Um, but even then it still exists for us sometimes. Are those people in or out our group, um, my family, and we've isolated it down to maybe the individualized family is more important than everything else, but but even that's a we and them type thing. and what the fulfillment of the Samaritan thing is going to be is, is, as we've talked, is that Luke is paired with Acts, is that they end up as a mission to be brought in to what God is doing. So Samaritans go from the opposition to this parable about one whom is good, hence what we all call this, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which incidentally is not in the text. We don't call him the Good Samaritan in the Bible, so that's an imposed interlay. And then there's this mission to them. And so Jesus is changing this notion of insiders and outsiders and who participates in what the God thing is doing throughout this whole sort of intercourse. And one of those is the Samaritans who are sort of the peak enemies we talked about. They're, they're secretists, they have their own uh, sort of religion that sort of modified Judaism. Um, they've uh, opposed sort of the building of the temple, they have their own temple. Um, the conflict between Samaritans and Jews is peak. It's, it's one that's one of the toughest. And so, um, in this interlaid conflict, is one that Jesus enters into and transforms, and transforms in a way that sort of says that all are sort of going to be brought into this kingdom thing that Jesus is doing. But this text, in reading it during Lent, uh, I think sort of focuses on that line of that the lawyer wanted to justify himself. We'll get to that as we go through the story, but I think one of the things that can overarch much of this is, is the ways in which we seek to justify ourselves. Now, classic sort of Protestant theology, it's your good works that you seek to justify yourself by. It's good works. And, and one of the things that concerns me as we go through this story is the ways that it's been weaponized against other people. To sort of say that these are the good works. These are the things. There's this thing in Matthew 25, which I've yet to preach on here yet. And there's a couple different interpretations of that passage. If you're familiar with the sheep and the goats, is the sheep have helped Jesus when he has been naked, hungry, and lonely, or those people. And Christ says to them, Surely what you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. And the goats didn't do that. But what's noticeable to me when you read that passage is both groups respond, one, Master, Master which means both recognized as one as Lord to some degree. And the second is that both groups didn't know what they were doing. Both groups say, when did we see you that way? And so that text, like this text, has been weaponized to say, make sure you're doing these good works. Thus defeating the whole purpose of the parable because the parable neither group is going, well that's obviously Jesus. It's almost to say, as if after reading that, I help The people who are naked, hungry, and this and that and the other, because they're Jesus in a weaker disguise, defeats the point, I mean, Christ, when he comes in his glory, as that parable suggests, will certainly be proud of you, I'm sure, but it's not the same as doing it out of the connection to the one who has transformed your life. So, the parable of the Good Samaritan has been weaponized in multiple ways, too, is to sort of say these people and do these things and this that and the other and it's incidentally its growth in culture um, as as we have many things named uh, named Good Samaritan particularly one of the most favorite is Good Samaritan laws if you try to be a Good Samaritan they can't sue you hmm. welcome to 21st century North America if that's not again I don't I can't use irony Brian knows this because I'm confused by what Alanis Morissette means by ironic whether that's ironic or not. Rand Kim have tried to straighten me out on this, too. It's not ironic, right? It's just a bad circumstance. Yes, if you're not familiar with this song, listen to it if you want. (laughs) um, You're not missing anything. Point being is, if that's not any more ironic, is that we have laws to protect people from getting sued for trying to do good things, and we call them Good Samaritan laws. But we have Good Samaritan Hospitals, Good Samaritan Ministries, and it's one and, and Christians should, should always have pause when these things reach sort of peak level in which you're not actually discussing sort of the text that's there, but just sort of a grander interpretation of what this means. There's actually no sort of hinge upon like, okay, so we're reading Luke 10, and this is the context in which it comes out of. It's more born out of our, our own sort of mass knowledge of this thing. And so what I want to do is return to the text today, return to the parable itself, and hopefully, it can strike us as weird and odd and as, as off, as, as trouble as it was at its time. Now, I will say that I learned too much about the parable of the Good Samaritan this week. Um, there are about, I mean, you could say there are 100 different ways to read the parable, which is sort of true of all the parables. But I never really re- reasoned that with the parable of the Good Samaritan. So what we're going to do is walk through it. And I'm going to make observations on the text. And if some of you are like, "Well, that's what a sermon's supposed to be," and then joking back in your head that I didn't get the memo on that, um, <laughs> that's fine. Um, but point being is, I'm going to make observations on that. Some of them might be contradictory into the overarching point of if there is an overarching point to the sermon. But that the, the observations are meant to provoke out of the parable as if we were the first hearers. Of So point is, I'm not going to be able to make complete sense of this parable into a nice box today. Um, Because I think it it pulls in multiple different ways. And it will pull multiple different ways in some sense on where you are, and then in some sense on how we overlay the situation of the story. So the story. Now, this is what's great about this parable. It starts with a certain lawyer stands up and says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? one of the things that is amazing about the story is it starts with a question, and then Jesus asks a question back, which he often does. Um, would have made him very hard to learn from you, think, sometimes, as he's always asking you questions back. Um, somebody asks Jesus a question, Jesus asks a question back, the guy gives an answer, Jesus says, good job, do that, and you will live. Then, the guy asks another question, Jesus asks Uh, a question back after telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, the guy answers the question, and he says, go and do likewise. This is, if you were to, to sort of look at it that way, question, question, answer, answer, great, great. This is a good story. This conversation is a successful conversation where both parties were heard and agreed. But actually, when you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's not going on, or this section of the text, that's not going on at all. It's heightened controversy, despite the fact that they're communicating quite clearly. There's not a lot of misunderstanding between the two of them. Each one of the questions that the lawyer answers, he answers correctly, according to Jesus. He's not always happy about that, as we'll find out. And so he asks the teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a common Question at this time, particularly posed to rabbis, is what must I do to join in the resurrection of the life to come? What must I do to join in this good news? What is the pinnacle of this? And as we've talked about before, the Jews have about 600 plus laws. I forget, um, but the point is, is the common kind of question is how do you discern these? And in a different gospel where Jesus sort of deals with the same answer to this question, it's like how do you weigh them? Um, and Jesus says they all hang together on these two commands. But there's this commonality to this question. And Jesus asks the question back, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Which is sort of the common way of asking this question back. Is As you read the 600 commands, as you read the Torah, which law is often a standard for Torah, not the whole Old Testament, is how do you read that? How do you weight it? The lawyer Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in Matthew and Mark, this comes out of Jesus when he's questioned. And actually, at this time, this is a common way to weight the law. Jesus did not invent this version of weighting the law. One of my favorite stories about this is a rabbi was asked by a a Gentile, uh, somebody not in the faith, can you recite the whole law for me and he, while well, standing on one foot? And the rabbi stands on one foot and he says exactly this um, and says, the rest is commentary, which I don't think he said, but um, something along those lines. And then the person converts. Um, easy conversion for that rabbi. Um, but it's common to answer the question this time, which is why this lawyer has this answer on hand. And one of the things we read this morning is that passage from Leviticus. Where this comes from is, if you don't know, this is a combination of an answer from Deuteronomy, which is sort of the heart of Jewish spirituality, the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Recited every morning by Jews. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I know many of you heard me say this before, but there's this notion that Christianity shouldn't be concerned with all this other ethical stuff, and this, that, and the other, because it's really just about love, and why we need the Old Testament and all that. Both these answers come from the Old Testament, and both these answers are situated in particular stories, in particular times and places, um, and yet they're used in a universal way. And then what, um, Brian, you read Leviticus verse this morning, um, there's a lot of stuff we say yes to in that section. We often think "Is there's not a lot that Christians say yes to in Leviticus, but really one of our peak commands comes from Leviticus. One of the things I was thinking about through that, and it relates somewhat to the to the sort of the weaponization of this text or how we use this to judge against other people, that's pertinent, I think, for our context and our time, is that um, it said to to judge the poor um, fairly and to not show favoritism towards the rich. I think we're very wary and worrisome about showing favoritism to the rich. We still do it, um, and it is a natural temptation among us. And I think there are places in our culture that still show don't judge the poor fairly. What's well, their fault? This, that, and the other. And they don't listen to the plight of the poor. But I think one of the things that perhaps has changed for us is we live in a culture, and there's a great study on this done by two psychologists, I think, at Stanford or Harvard, one at the big school, about how that if you can claim in certain contexts of our society marginalization, then somehow you have power. I think we're all familiar with this in some ways, is that if you can claim that you know, you've been abused in this way or this has been a challenge or that you're connected to this historically discriminated people group, which could be race, race, sex, uh, uh, learning disability, disability, whatever, um, that there's power that somehow is gifted to that. But I think what Leviticus reminds us of, as easy as it is to show the temptation towards the rich, we can equally show a temptation towards not being fair to those who are in poverty by making them a group of people without sin or without struggle. And I think it's a unique temptation today um, in which power is sort of versed in those ways. I'm aware this is controversial. um, but I think it's a reminder for us as we love our neighbor as ourselves. And in this context of this of this passage being used here, it's for us to be wise and to know about this. The quote on the back of the bulletin from Flannery O'Connor, um, if you're familiar with Flannery O'Connor, she's meant to shock you. Um, I have my bulletin where I can leave it. Um, uh, she, she obviously imposes to shock. But what she says is that Uh, and the key part of this, it is tenderness which, long cut off from the person of Christ, is wrapped in theory. When tenderness is detached from the source of tenderness, its logical outcome is terror. It ends in forced labor camps and the fumes of the gas chambers. Um, Compassion ends in those places. And what O'Connor is trying to say is that today we check our minds when it comes to compassion. We don't think through things. Compassion is the ultimate good. Compassion is just truth itself. If we put you in a situation where you are called to feel empathy and compassion, you are driven to do that. And you don't think through it. And anybody who thinks through compassion, and this I've seen happen to various people, and sometimes correctly and sometimes wrongly, is instantly cold, brutish, and enemy. Compassion is feeling and feeling is good. What Connor says is that when that becomes detached from the person of Christ, and she's noting at the beginning of that that section, this is a relatively new phenomenon. It can go to dark places because we begin to not think through things and offer help in the ways that it is, is good, but makes us feel good often. So one of the disciplines of Lent is almsgiving, which O'Connor says, if you are going to be driven by compassion, at least just give money to the poor and and go volunteer at food sites, and let it be what it is. Um, uh, Because there you meet real need and you meet real people. Um, And so that's an argument for renewed almsgiving. Um, But this is how the lawyer summarizes the law. That was our longest aside. (laughs) Now we stick with the story. You have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. If the story ended here, this would be great. Um, But as Luke is one to do, and the Gospels are one to do, stories don't often end where they would end great. The lawyer um, then asked Jesus, uh, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my name?" A lawyer who wants to find a way to say that these people are in and these people are out. He wants to know that he's practiced this well. He may have, have had a chance to be practicing and living in this way and, and being a lawyer and teaching other people that this is the category of what neighbor is. And so who is the person I should care for? Who is the person I should love as if I love myself, as I love myself? Um, There are multiple ways you can give a very clear answer to this, but Jesus tells a story, which I think tells us something about the wisdom of who Christ is. He doesn't give a direct answer to this question. And I think it's a very important thing we'll see at the end, but it's worth pondering is that he could have just said, well, anyone." the person who lives on your right or her left. All people are created in the image of God, therefore all people. There are answers that we routinely accept, and there are answers that Jews might have accepted at this time. Later in Leviticus, after it says, you're called to love your neighbor as yourself, there's things that extend this to the forum. Now, Jews at that time sort of neglected that portion of the, that law. It should come as no shock to us because we also neglect portions of what we're called and told to do. But they've sort of laid that off and said it's for the people on the interior. It's for the people closely related to us. Now incidentally, if uh, a rabbi at this time, and it's hard to know how many Jews participate in each one of these answers, but a rabbi at this side says if you get alms from a, a Samaritan, you're actually delaying the amount of time it takes for God to fulfill his mission here. So there's also about who you can accept help from. If for some reason you receive charity from a Pharisee or a a Samaritan, somehow you've you've tanked the whole product of Judaism. So we don't live in this sort of frame, but that's sort of what this, this text is struggling with at the time so the story Jesus answers with is that a man, and everybody, I think, says this is fair to assume that this person is a Jew, goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he was attacked by robbers. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 miles, and it's pretty much all down. So the hill down from Jerusalem to Jericho is just straight down. And it's a, a, a plot of land that was often controlled by robbers. It's not a safe place to travel at this time. Now, what's interesting is that the hearers of this parable, of the most person, the people they might be the most sympathetic to, is the robbers. It's the robbers. There was a certain group of robbers in the ancient Near East on this road that were using the violence as sort of a, uh, in a terrorist way to say that you're making money off the empire. You're making money off this thing that is not connecting well for us. And so the robbers see themselves as sort of vigilantes who take break, steal your stuff, beat you up, and leave you on the road. They tell you to stop making money from this transaction back and forth. Um, the robbers could be people that, of all the people in this, the lawyer, I mean, we have jokes about lawyers. Um, the lawyer may not be the most sympathetic person in the parable. Um, the guy beat up may not be the most sympathetic parable. The robbers might be the most sympathetic people in the parable in this time and this place. But the parable is full of sort of people that we should struggle to sort of think through and with. They stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and they left him away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to go by the same road and when he saw the man he passed on the other side. There's two things that are going on here. One, if the priest is returning to Jericho, wherever he lives, is that if he has all of his earnings that he earned at the temple, and he's going back to be with his family, if he touches someone who is dead, he becomes ritually unclean. And all the stuff with him, there are some interpretations, also becomes ritually unclean. So if he went to go work at the temple for quite a period of time, and he comes back with his, his payment for his work, his almsgiving, his, or his receipt, receipt of giving. And he stops and touches a dead person. And it says that this guy's half dead. And there are other things that might make him unclean by being associated with him. He loses it all. So the priest crosses to the other side. The next person, um, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed to the other side as well. In this culture, first off, like I said, that there's some of this is like, well, that makes sense. They should be doing that. Or if he's going to the temple, this is the other thing. If the priest is ritually unclean when he gets to the temple, guess what he can't do? Be a priest. Can't be a Levite. And so there's a sense in which it makes sense at the time, too. Another thing that happens at this time is one body is left as a booby trap for other bodies. To stop on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho and help somebody else is to put yourself at risk for the next robber or robbers hiding to beat you up and steal from you as well. The rational person reading this parable at the time doesn't think there's much wrong with what these two people do. For us, that we can jump to like, well, that's horrible and this, that, and the other, should, we should pause for a second and sit with, this can make sense. Because if it just seems wrong and this, that, and the other, then the rest of the parables do not make any sense. The shock of the parable isn't going to be there if you just think, yeah, those people were entirely wrong and horrible. It's like, we've well, already judged them too much, we're not going to get much further by going further down the road to the parable. So if you spend your sort of notion that this is what they were supposed to do, then it they were supposed to do that. But again, life is complex. Um, there are other concerns. There are other factors. Um, you can make these people into an enemy real fast, which again is, is the weaponizing of this text. Or you can sit with it and say, um, this is a dangerous road. This is a dangerous place. This guy doesn't seem like he's going to make it. There's When you pick him up, there is no hospital you can drop him off. So for me, it's like, oh, I will to throw them in the back of the Subaru. I have plastic mats back there so I can wash out the blood. Um, and then just bring them to Glenwood Springs Hospital. Doesn't exist at the time. Not factoring in the fact that I would be unlikely to do that because I know my own humanity. I'd like to say I would. But even if I were likely to do that, the benefits that we have today didn't exist for them then. So before... We move on don't think of him as evil but a samaritan as he traveled came where the man was and he saw him and he took pity on him a samaritan an outsider samaritan with um less place of safety in this land than Jews has is the one who stops and has pity on him a better translation i don't know which one you guys have might be compassion and compassion in the Bible, um, this is one of the favorite preachers' words we like to nerd out on. So I'll keep it short, as you've probably heard out before. Is connects with the guts. Hampton, uh, can you pronounce that word? Because it's, you know, it's You know which one I'm thinking of? Compassion. S P L A C H. I mean, like it's like I way too many concepts. It's sure. That's the way I would have gone with. It, I think. Um, I didn't even bother to try and do it. But anyways, it's, it, it has this internal feeling. So for them, compassion you felt in your stomach, in your gut. He has compassion on him. He feels discomfort in his own body for the person he sees on the side of the road. The Samaritan feels that, and this is where the story, If I'm, I'm gonna pause and read it slowly. Goes over the top. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Then the next day, he gave out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have." If it's not clear, Jesus is laying it on thick with what this man does. He stops, he checks on him, hey, he's not half dead, here's some water, get yourself home. He stops, he puts him on his donkey, brings him to a inn and says, He's your problem now. Um, He stops. He helps him. He stops. he (coughs) He went to him and he bandages his wounds. The aspect of care, you read this too fast, you miss. He stops and he bandages his wounds. He pours oil and wine on him. This would seem like a waste many of the hearers. It takes time to sort of pour out oil and wine on him. Then he puts him on his own donkey. He takes, displaces himself for this person. He puts him on his own donkey, and he brings him to an inn. And took care of him for a day. This person in agony. So here, so far, A+. Plus. But Jesus goes a step further. Then the next day, he gives money to the innkeeper and says, "Look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have." So this is where we miss the shock of this parable. There's, there's here, and this is where why very, very, we should be resisted to use it in the mass cultural way of just be good to people. There's here. Um, I see somebody wounded on the side of the road, Um, and Kelly has has more often than not called me out to stop and help these people. Um, Often she's dropping me off at church in her last town, and I get out somewhat annoyed, but my wife has called me out correctly, Um, and I sit with this person on the side of the road. What can I do to help you? Well, there's this resource and this thing and this. Great job by the pastor. Still failing at the Good Samaritan Parable, because What I should have done is gotten outside instead of seeing them uh, in the ways that I think we all can see people in that situation, addicted this, that, and the other. I could have come to them, had compassion on them, which normally I do stuff like this more out of obedience than compassion, which isn't wrong, but is a noticeable difference on how you enter the situation. Yes, I know I'm supposed to do this. I will do it. I feel for them. Um, I'm not as good at that as maybe some other people are. Um, And so I do it out of this. But you can see the problems already. If you take this as, you know, this is really just a parable about being a kinder person, you're missing the entire point. This person goes above and beyond by many miles of what would have been expected to be done and what would have been seen as proper to be done. So much so that his wife, when he got home, might be like, What were you thinking? (laughs) One, we could have used the money. Two, you put yourself at risk. Three, um, you know, there's blood all over the donkey, um, which I don't know if that's hard to get out or not. Like, just imagine. Um, uh, uh, You know, where'd the oil and wine go that you were picking up from the store? They didn't have stores at this time, so we we'll use the oil and wine. That's a bigger challenge, too, because you don't reimburse it the same way we do. Well, I'm out $10. I'll just go buy more I'll oil and wine. Where did the oil and wine go? We miss so much if we make this into the quick and easy parable. Which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man, Jesus asked them. This is the question again. The, was a neighbor of the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. The expert in law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Now there's, we talked about it last week. For this man, it would have been very hard to use the phrase Good Samaritan. Because it would be like for some Christians saying, and we, we could pick on either side, it was like for some Christians hearing, the good Republican. Um, or for other Christians, the good homosexual. Or for other Christians, the good Muslim. Or and the fact that it's interreligious conflict combined with that they're combined with this, combined with this,
0: means it's even hard to find an analog, because at least you might have a friend who's who's a Democrat, or you might have a
1: friend who's a Republican, or this, that, and the other. Like it is so foreign to them he can't say, well, obviously the Samaritan, because the Samaritan can't be the hero of the story to him. He can only just say the one who has mercy upon him one who has compassion upon him, which should cause us to check ourselves on what we expect and think of other people sometimes. Another thing we miss if we rush through this parable. And Jesus told him to go and do likewise. This is the answer to one who is trying to justify himself by asking, who is my neighbor? But before I end the sermon, I just want to reference a case study. Princeton Seminary, I don't know why they do this to people. I'm the person who hears about these studies and thinks, that was horrible. Why would you do that to somebody? They get young seminarians, and maybe because it's my career, I think it's more horrible. They get young seminarians, have them rate themselves on their index of compassion and how caring they are to other people. And then they say, great, um, you're, you're a stellar student or this, something like that, or the other, and you have to go preach on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's across the hall. And across the hall is, a, it doesn't, I've never gotten the details, somebody who's beaten up or drunk. And they say, okay, so you're going to go across the hall, you go outside and go through, you go preach in the chapel, and, um, and go and do that. And so the researchers watch, the person who's there is, is obviously a, um, a test, it's a stunt. And the number of people who stopped was six, or, the number of people who stopped was 40%. So not great. Um, uh, but the second thing that they noticed was time. And there was no other correlate. Like how, th- how compassionate they thought they were didn't make them stop more or less. Like the idea that like, I'm very good at this, that didn't make them stop more. Everybody who said was modest didn't make them stop more either. Those were non-quantitative sort of things. But the interesting thing was, they sent some of them, they said, you got plenty of time, just go over there, you know, 30 minutes. They said to some of them, you should kind of like go now, they're waiting for you. And to others, they said, like, no time. You have to get over there. It. It's, it's, you don't have any time to do this. This is where it gets interesting, is there people in low hurry, 63% of them stop. People in a medium hurry, but they suggest to them, 45% of them stop. People in a big hurry, 10% of them stop. Now, I don't know about you, but often when I ask people how they're doing, they say busy. They're stressed. They're in a hurry. They're moving around fast. If you wanted to have a society that was able to practice compassion a little bit better, it would have to be, according to this study, a society less in a hurry and less busy and less jamming everything in. An author I like um, was worried about his rogue rage. He wrote an essay about this and he said that one of the ways that he solved his road rage after seeing a therapist was leaving 15 minutes earlier to get everywhere. Uh, now everybody around him is no longer a threat to him getting there on time. What was just somebody else moving fastly along the track? One of the things I take from that study and what does it mean for us to be inspired by the parable of the Good Samaritan today is have time in your life. Don't always be in a hurry. Because as much as you may think, oh, I'm really great at compassion, as much as you may think I'm not that great at compassion, It doesn't really matter, according to this study, and others have been done to sort of correspond. What matters is how you view the resource that you have. I have all the time in the world, I'm more likely to deal with the interruptions that come along the way. Every minute of my life is planned and anything that gets in the way is a hindrance to the goals that I have. You'll be less likely to be friendly to the person who comes upon the way. There are lots of places to end this sermon. Um, The go and do likewise phrase is one that I think is a challenge to us. Because it's not quite clear. The man wanted to know, who is my neighbor? And Jesus in some sense makes it that neighboring is a two-way map. You become a neighbor. You are a neighbor. There is no somebody out there who you classify as neighbor and they'll care for them. You exist in an act of neighboring. And so Bonhoeffer, we talked about last week, summarizes it this way. The question, who is my neighbor, is the final question of despair or hubris in which the disobedient justifies itself. The answer is you, yourself, are the neighbor. Go and be obedient in acts of love. Being a neighbor is not a qualification of someone else. It is their claim on me, nothing else. Every moment in every situation, I am one required to act to be obedient. There is literally no, uh, (coughs) I typed this out, literally no no one to ask about someone else's qualifications. I must act and obey. I must be a neighbor to the other person. In some sense, he makes this man his neighbor. He says, go about being a neighbor to other people. Go about a neighboring. Now the last thing that I wanna say about this parable which is the most counterintuitive piece of the way it's been overutilized in our society, which is man wants to justify himself, and only God is one who justifies. Jesus has this habit of teaching in Luke and in Matthew and Mark and John, of teaching high, high standards for how you should live. Love your enemies. Somebody slaps you in the face, turn the other cheek. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The parable of the Good Samaritan, I think when we properly sit with it under the guise of how do I justify it myself, is an inspiration to us. It's something we find comfort in, and yet it's something that properly, like those teachings, brings us to confession, to the ways that we fall short of the one who walked the path before us. So, my grabbed instead of my Bible, was St. Augustine's commentary on the Psalms, and he ends one of the ones we did, the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 126, with this psalm and this journey has been used to inspire you towards kindness. And so, remember, a certain man went down from Jerusalem, and that man fell into the hands of robbers, was beaten up, left on the road, and such and the other. He says, that is all of us who follow the plot of Adam. And yet there is another who walks the path, who's not able to be corrected by law. If law could do it, there would be no need for this teaching, because they have the law. There's, there's another who walks this path, who comes and binds and takes us along the road. <coughs> St. his classic phase says, and then he drops him off at an inn, which is the church. And the innkeeper is the teacher there who is now going to care for this lost and broken one who was found upon the side of the road, picked up by Jesus Christ, and instruct him in the journey back upward the mountain to the heavenly city. This parable is hard for us. It's meant to be hard for us because the model we follow in Jesus Christ is one who goes beyond in so many ways. So what we see in this parable is Jesus who comes, binds our wounds, anoints us with oil, gives us wine, and brings us to a place to be restored to a relationship awaiting that journey to the heavenly home. Let us pray. God, there are many ways in which we try to justify ourselves. smarter, with greater care, more aware of the challenges of other people, better at running a business, better at raising a family, better at caring for those people who are in our circle, but not the people on the outside. And what this parable can do for us is free us from the need to justify ourselves. to find that we exist in a relationship called neighboring with other people all the time. To ask who is my neighbor is to try and find some out of that relationship. Many as the efforts to justify ourselves are to undercut the gospel and the claim that you have on our lives. God, inspire us with the vision of your Son who lives in this way. That we may go and do likewise in the character of the one who came to save lost and broken humanity, who exists as an enemy to you, and that you die and free with compassion and love, and free us to live in the service of your name. I ask all this in your holy name. Amen.